0: Well, good morning, man. It is great to see you today. It's it's uh, it's wonderful, and uh, you know there's <clears throat> there's a lot of canceling in our culture going on. What do you think we cancel daylight savings time? Am I good with that? Well, here we are, man. I'm telling you, I'm excited that you're here. I'm so thankful. If you're new, we're really glad you're here. We uh, prepare for you and plan for you, and we prayed for you. And so, if uh, it's weird to come to a new church, honestly. Uh, So we're really thankful that you took the chance to do that, and uh, we'd love to connect with you when you're ready uh, for that as well. So a couple weeks away is Easter. You heard that today. It's going to be a great day for us. It's going to be a great day. We're going to three services. Um, I keep getting these these numbers wrong. 830, 945, and 11. On your way out, they're going to give you a card, and you'll be able to uh, keep that with you. They'll make sure you know what's going on Easter. So look around. If... We had Easter today, we'd have nowhere to put the people that we invite, or people that show up, or uh, people that are new, or checking out church, or whatever, so um, so I'm going to need half of you to come at 9.45, and the other half at 11, okay? I'll let you decide for that. If you don't want your wife to come with you, you send her to the early service, that kind of deal. <laughs> And we'll be glad that you were able to help us accommodate. And there will be child, uh, kids ministry at both services. And then going forward from Easter, we'll have uh, kids ministry at both of our morning services. Um, so that some of you guys have asked, can we, can we come early and want to go to the, the earlier service? So that will be uh, available. So that will be really good. What I want you to do is take that card on your way out. And I want you to pray about it. And I want you to think, who needs this and who could come with me? And then just trust God and give it to them. Can you do that? And just invite them to Easter and just know that they could, uh, their life could be changed because you took a chance uh, to invite them to church. So yesterday I spent uh, like eight, nine hours with about eight guys from our church, um, part of our security team. And so we went and we're trying to get our whole team through. There's a, there's a, a slew of people in our church who every Sunday keep us safe. And I am really thankful for that. If you do that, if you, um, if you serve on that team, I'm really, really thankful for you. So we went yesterday, and we went to this, uh, this, this training, and they were going to train us how to, how to do different things and how to be safe and how to think strategically. And uh, Man, it was, uh, it was quite the experience. I worked out harder yesterday than I've worked out in a decade. <laughs> and when I looked around, everybody else felt exactly the same way. We did calisthenics for an hour before we started. At one at one point, is Mike Hill in here? At one point, he, he yelled at Mike Hill to drop him, give him ten. Mike dropped and gave him like seven, you know. And then he looked around to the rest of us and it dropped to five, you know. Like you just give me five push-ups. It was a great day. You know how you're supposed to be sore like two days later, but I was sore last night when I laid down. Like I just went to bed, ate, went to bed, like done. It was really fun. I could, uh, I was able to to just take my aggression out on some people that I'd wanted to throw around a little bit. It was fantastic. If you have that kind of aggression, but you can control it, we'd love for you to be on our security team. All right? All right? It'd be great. We would appreciate that. And I'm thankful if you serve in that way. So you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you've got a Bible. And uh, we're in this series on Nehemiah. You might be new and say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. It's okay, I'll catch you up. And you might say, I've been here every week, still don't know what you're talking about. Great, I'll catch you up. And here's what it is. Nehemiah, he sees a need. He sees a problem. He says, you know, there's a problem somebody needs to fix. And the problem is that Jerusalem's wall has crumbled. And the, the leaders have not led well. And so Nebuchadnezzar, uh, came in and ruined literally, ransacked the city, and destroyed the walls. And this left in ancient times the city vulnerable and embarrassed and and so uh, this is the land of Nehemiah's forefather, and so he asks his boss, Artaxerxes, can I go a thousand miles across this unforgiving desert and fix the problem? He says, we're going to bathe it in prayer, and then we're going to we're going to put action to our prayers now if you've ever seen a problem, you thought, why wouldn't somebody take care of that? Why won't somebody jump in? Why won't somebody do something about it? Then, then you understand Nehemiah's heart because he said there's a problem and nobody's doing anything. So he said, well, I'll do it. And within those walls were ten gates. And so we've looked at a wall, a, a gate each, each week or a gate or two. And in ancient days, gates were a big deal. They were they were a super big deal. They were more than just entrance and exits. They were uh, places where business and defense was handled, where merchants came in and out, where elders held court. They were where uh, criminals were tried and executed. Uh, sometimes there were war strategies that were planned. So these entrance and exits were a big, big deal. And because the gates were a place of public gathering, the condition of the gates affected public life. And so they're each given a name and an order. And you say, well, what does that matter to us? Who cares? Well, it, it matters because if it mattered enough for God to lead Nehemiah to fix certain things and to pay attention to certain things, that it, it should be within our understanding of what is important to God. And if it's important to him, that it's important to us. And as God builds this church, as some of you are new, some of you are, are, have come back after a long time from being away at COVID, and, and as some of you have been here for a while— we want to make sure that the things God emphasizes, we are emphasizing. If it's important to him, it's important to us. And so each gate named in encounter, clockwise fashion, Nehemiah fixes the gates. And so they have this modern-day parallel that we apply every week. And so we just are going to focus on what matters to God. We talked the first week, uh, if you weren't with us, about the sheep gate, that all sheep were brought through the slaughter and that they were, uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of the world slain for us. We talked about the fish gate, that evangelism should be part of your life, that Jesus calls you to be fishers of men. We talked about the old gate, that you should search for truth, not just a, uh, an answer, but actually truth within that answer. We talked about the valley gate, that, the, that life has lows, but that Christ says he will walk with you and not forsake you. We talked about the dung gate, where there was a, um, a literal trash heap fire that reminds us of what God thinks about sin. He loves the sinner but hates the sin, and we should view it like that as well. We talked about the fountain gate, that the Holy Spirit flows through us and works in us. We talked about the water gate, right, that the Bible does not, it was the only gate that didn't need fixing. The Bible does not need mine or your help. It is good, and we are to take what it says and obey that. The, The Bible says you'll be washed through, a washing of water through the Word, and then we talked about the horse gate, that the the cavalry would come, and that uh, they would be come and go in spiritual warfare. That there is a battle that goes on outside of what we see. Man, all right, we made it. Right here's the last day. We're doing gates nine, and we're doing gates ten, and then we'll conclude this. So we're talking uh, gate nine is the east gate. You'll see that in yellow, the east gate. And it's, um, it's recorded in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 29. I'm going to read four verses to you. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I skipped over names. And um, somebody asked my wife, what they ask if I had? What is it? They want to know if I had dyslexia. <laughs> the answer would be no. In my day, they didn't diagnose you with that stuff. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to give it a better shot today, all right? Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Verse 29. Next to them, Zadok son of Amir made repairs opposite of his house, and next to him, Shammai son of Shekin, the guard of the east gate, there's the east gate, made repairs. Verse 30. Next to him, Hanani son of Zelahim and Hanun, the sixth son, of Zalaf repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berkai, made repairs opposite of his living quarters. Verse 31, next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate, gate number 10. And as far as the room above the corner, and between the room and above the corner and the sheep gate, gate number one, so we're all the way back around, The goldsmith and the merchants made repairs. So the Bible makes a big deal about east, right? It has lots of references to the east. The Garden of Eden was in the east. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, and God set a cherubim to guard the east entrance so they would not be able to return. When Moses fashioned the tabernacle, he insisted that during the time of wandering, he was instructed to tell them, make sure its entrance faced east. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the entrance on his insistence faced east. When Jesus was a young child, and wise uh, came to see him, they came to worship him. Wise men came from the east. The Bible tells us that Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he will return to the Mount of Olives east of the city of Jerusalem. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus will enter Jerusalem through the East Gate. What we learn from the East Gate is we look for the second coming of Jesus, which will be through the East Gate. The Bible teaches that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he was alive for 40 more days, that multiple uh, people saw him and testified to him, and then he ascended back into heaven where he came from. And it says, disciples are standing around him, and he was instructing them, and he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and the Bible records that two angels appeared, and here are their remarks in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. They say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then they, the disciples, return to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So the truth that we take in for gate number nine is there will come a day when Jesus returns. And we refer to that as his second coming. He will come to the Mount of Olives. which he descended to, he will will go the slope of the Mount of Olives, and he will go across the Kindred Valley, which is the valley gate, which we talked about. He'll go up the hill and enter through the east gate about three-fourths of a mile distance. So Ezekiel prophesied and said, I see this, right? I see the coming of Christ, and he will enter the city through the east gate. Ezekiel chapter 43, this is what he says. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. And I saw the glory of the Lord of Israel coming from the east. And his voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner courts, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So Ezekiel is very clear on what he sees. He sees that, that Christ will enter through the east gate, that the temple will be filled, and that the city will be filled With his presence. David prophesies this as well as Jesus' second coming. Uh, Psalms 24, Psalm 24, verse 9. Lift up your head, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, for the King of glory may come in. Speaking of the East Gate. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. The East Gate reminds us. The second coming of Christ is specific and near. So we have to be prepared and we have to be ready and we have to know that that he's coming back. Here's the deal. Jesus is coming back whether you like it, whether you hate it, whether you think about it or ignore it or everything in between. The Bible said Jesus is coming again. And so he says, the Bible says, be urgent about that. Be urgent for being ready. He's coming back. You should have anticipation and urgency. Think about this. You're sitting around the table. Maybe you've finished dinner. You make your way to the living room. You have evening stuff that you do and all that kind of thing. And then you say, okay, let's sit down for a second. You have your your devotions maybe as a family or something. You talk, you pray. And then you say, all right. Time for bed. Let's go. Now, what's everybody do? You hear a groan. Ah. Oh. Like it doesn't happen every single night. Ah. <laughs> oh. And then people start, I got to feed the dog. I got to take the dog out. I got to feed the dog. I got to go tell mama something. I got to go get this. My no, my sheets. The other night, it was none of my sheets or my pillow or, or my blankets are in my bed. Where are they? <laughs> like... How do you not have any of that stuff in your bed? Like, where does that stuff go? So uh, I think if I heard crack, the answer was outside, but I didn't even ask. I was like, I don't care, man. Get Just get in your bed, whatever. So so imagine, you know, for, me as the dad, I'm sitting around my family, and I say, all right, let's go to bed. You ready? And I do like this to be official, like, all right, like, like, like break, like one, two, three, break. All right, let's go. And I'm thinking every night, I think it's going to be like, they're going to run to bed like, yes, daddy, and run to bed, but they just kind of kind of mill around, just kind of, just kind of, that's not what the Bible speaks of when it talks about urgency. No, no, let me ask you this. Do you know what Bitcoin is? Right? It's a digital currency, and it could be fool's gold, or it could be the next wave, who knows, and uh, if you have ever invested in Bitcoin, I'd like to talk to you after, but <laughs> got some things we like to do around here, and... uh and so imagine this. Imagine that in 2010, you were smart enough. Another pastor and I almost did this. This might be the greatest financial mistake of my life, right? We were going to take $1,000. We were going to invest it together. Imagine if you invested $1,000 in Bitcoin in 2010 at $0.08 cent a share. You would have somewhere over $650 million. Like you'd have like 500, what is it? $585 because you would have tied first, right? <laughs> right? I know you. I know you. You would have tied first. And so that would have been good. It, it is a risky investment, man. The reason we didn't do it is because when we looked at it, the uh, website and the stuff you had to do seemed kind of, kind of shady. And so we were like, they're going to steal our money. We're just going to throw $500 away. And, you know, this isn't going to go well. And, and we had talked about, we had talked about there was a bunch of digital currencies, So we were going to invest 100 in each one, right? So I would only have been worth like $65 million, you know, something, something silly. But it's just risky investment, and oh, well, life is life, right? Now, imagine this. Imagine that you didn't pay attention from 2010 until now, and you were like, ah, I'm going to turn the TV on, I'm going to see what happened. You turn the TV on, and you think to yourself, well, let me see how investments are doing. Turn the investments on, and you think, Bitcoin, somebody just told me, I checked it the other day, but somebody said it's hit $60,000 a share. So you would have bought it at 8 cents, and it now hits 60 million, I mean 60,000 a share. What do you do next? <laughs> now you got some urgency, don't you? Jump off that couch and you call the digital banker. I don't know who you call. You call somebody and you say, I want my millions of dollars, right? You don't do urgency like a kid going to bed like, oh my guys, give me my 60. million, right? You got this, you got this, now you got this urgency. So the Bible tells us, literally, that you should wait for the Lord's return like a man cashing out an investment that has done well, not a kid who is being dragged to bed because he has to, not wants to. So Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, speaking of Jesus, And his bride, we know to be the church, has made herself ready. We're ready. Like we live anticipating that Christ will return and we don't bemoan the fact or worry. We are ready. And so John chapter 14, Jesus says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now look, in in a day like we're in, that's really difficult. I know that. I don't have my head in the sand. I mean, I'm a pastor that's got to go to security training. Our days messed up. But look, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and I'll take you with me, so you may also be where I am. And then he says this. You know the place where I am going. He's speaking of his return to the east gate. And the Bible records that it don't matter what you look like, how much money you made, how bad you've been. Jesus can save you and has prepared, the Bible says, a place for you when either your life is over or he returns. So what's he saying? He's saying, man, I'm coming again. I'm coming through that east gate, and Ezekiel saw it, and Daniel saw it. I mean, David saw it, and John prophesied about it, right? Now I'm going to show you a picture of modern day the east gate. So this is the east gate, and um, the east gate is not the same as the gate that was in Nehemiah's day because they have built over the ruins of the original gate. The current version of the east gate was... um, was erected in the sixth century A.D. It's the oldest gate of the eight remaining gates in Jerusalem, and it's the only double arched gate. And it's walled up. You say, "Well, when when did that happen?" In in 1541, um, it was it was walled up. There was a there were Mugh- Muslim Turks in the 1500s who had who had come to power, and so they were taking over things and changing things. They were part of the Ottoman. Uh, Empire, and because they ruled the day, there was a guy named Suleiman the First, right? Or his name was Suleiman the Magnificent, as he was called, and he gave orders to seal the east gate specifically, and and um, and, uh, and and in ways that no entry could be formed in any way for as long as that gate and uh, wall stood. You say, well, why in the world would he order this to be walled up? Well, Suleiman the Great was aware of Ezekiel 43. And so he knew that the Messiah would come and enter Jerusalem through the east gate. So he decided he was going to prevent Christ's return through that gate. So he walled up the gate. And in addition to this foolishness, he ordered a cemetery to be put in front of the gate because he knew the Messiah was a priest and that he couldn't—he uh, was prohibited, prohibited with coming into contact with death. And so the Muslim was saying to the Messiah, we dare you to enter this walled-up gate, and we double-dog dare you because we're going to put a cemetery in front of it. And Jesus says, you can dare me, you can double-dog dare me, but if I said I'm coming back, I'm coming back. And if I want to go through that gate, I'm going to go through that gate. And no bricks and no wall and no mortar and no headstone is going to stop me from returning through the east gate. There are approximately a thousand prophecies in the Bible concerning Christ's second coming, about a third more than the prophecies about his first coming. So when we study prophecy and we're guided by the principles that Scripture has, we have to make sure we read it in terms of how the original hearers would read it and not put our own spin on things. So the end times study is called eschatology. It's, that's what a bunch of smart people came together and decided to call it uh, because they had to take the Bible and dissect it. And so they said, well, we got to call it something, so we're going to call it eschatology. And, man, the language of eschatology, I've studied it uh, to be a pastor. It's, it's robust and it's complicated, and there's all these phrases and descriptions and different camps within the end times Theology and, and uh, the largest camps categorized into uh, pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, and amillennialist. And within the group of pre, you find a, a secret rapture and believers who are further categorized as pre-, mid- and post tribulationists. Now let me ask you this. Maybe you're like me and my wife. We're sitting there on a, well, we don't, we don't go out to eat much anymore because there's so many kids, it's no fun, you know. But someday we'll go back out to eat, you know. Take five kids out like, why do we do this? This is cost an arm and leg, and I'm not even having fun. You know, like, well, let's say you decide to go out to eat. Let's say we have a rare chance that we go out to eat. Say, where do you want, babe, where do you want to eat at tonight? What's she say? I don't know. She said, where do you want to eat at? I said, well, anywhere is fine. Let me ask you this. I had a friend that says this. How do I fry up I don't know and anywhere is fine? Right? So here's what I've done. I'll just tell you to be honest. You you can try this one. It works really well. If my wife ever says I don't know, then I start heading toward the nearest all-you-can-eat buffet or Denny's. And instantly she comes up with something she wants to eat. You know? (laughs) Try it. You'll see. If you're like us, though, once you have a lot of options, it's really hard to make decisions. It becomes very confusing very fast. The study of end times oftentimes trails off into these options and suddenly you're super confused for the average believer and you're trying to figure out, now, what do we believe again and when is that and what period was that? And, what and None of that study's wrong. It just can get very difficult and you can get bogged down in it. And that's where people start to argue over things that I don't think Christ intended for us to ever argue over. And so we as a Nazarene church, we believe that there are definitely end-time studies and there's things you should know, but our theological stance is we leave room for the believer to study as God leads and conclude. And so you say, well, okay, so you're not picking an end-times camp to, to camp out in, then, then should we stop caring or ignoring it or, or not? No, man, no, absolutely not. Like we should, we should really worry about and think about and study, not worry, we should think and study and prepare ourselves. But here's the things we know for sure that we hold to. Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and that's an understanding that the body and the soul, which has gone on before, will reunite for a new body, that the risen and the living saints will be called up to him in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. We hold to those four things. We get that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where it says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, those who've gone on. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, here's the instruction: encourage one another with these words. What it doesn't say is get in your own camp and fight all the other camps, and 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 you got you Christians make yourselves look ridiculous and, and get all bent out of shape over. No, I mean it says, encourage one another as you see the day approaching so here's here's the question when will he return go ahead T- turn to your neighbor somebody across the way go ahead tell him when when Christ will return go ahead do you remember when you were in school and the answer I don't know got you in trouble well it gets you the right answer in this scenario right When will Christ return? We don't know. And anybody that says they do know is false. Matthew chapter 24 says this, No one knows the time or the hour, the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill and one will be taken and the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. You're sitting at work one day and one of you has gone suddenly and one of you stays. And my prayer for you is that you'll be the one that's gone. It's like the days of Noah, he says. These people did not see rain. They don't even know what Noah's talking about. You want to build a big ark with a, like a house, a houseboat. We don't even know what a boat is. You want to build a boat? And, and you're telling us we got to get in this thing. And he's telling them, save you, save your family. Come in here with me. There's a flood coming. And they say, we don't, we don't even know what you're talking about. They don't even know what rain is come in here and save yourself and save me and they mocked him and they laughed at him and, and for, for like 120 years they just made, made mock of him until the first drop of rain hit somebody's face and then it was too late so the Bible says a believer will be left and a non-believer a, a believer will be taken and a non-believer will be left one will be gone and one will still be there do you remember when you were, when you were younger and you are getting ready to go somewhere or maybe you do this now? You say, all right, let's go. We're headed out the door. Maybe you're coming to church on a Sunday morning and you say, let's, let's, get, let's get out of here. We're going to get into the car. And dad makes his way out and the kids, some of the kids make their way out. And, and uh, who do you not want to be? You don't want the person left in the house. And there's always one. And you know, you're sitting right now thinking, you know who that one is. Get your butt in the car, right? So, so dad gets in the car, and he's frustrated, like I've been waiting forever, and everybody gets in the car. How do you know when dad is really serious? Because he honks the horn. When dad honks the horn, boy, he is serious. And let me ask you this, what phase are we in when it comes to the return of Christ? We're in the ready-in-the-car When God says it's done, he's honking the horn, and we're out. And we're telling as many people as possible, get out here. Get out. We're like Noah's day. We're we're saying, come on. Come on. You can still save yourself. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can get in here with us. And when he returns, he'll, he'll take you to be with him. And they mock us, and they make fun of us, and they say, you're crazy. And all I can see is, but you're condemning yourself. If only you would believe in the name of Jesus and be saved. So here we are at a moment when it speaks of the rapture, when believers will be taken. It says this in Luke 12. you got to be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when we do not expect him. Peter says this in 2 Peter. Everything will be destroyed. So what kind of people ought you to be? Speaking of, of end times. He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed of its coming. In other words, none of you are getting younger. Anybody notice the older you get, the faster the days go? I don't know why that is. I mean, my days are just clipping by where I get done and think, oh, my word. I mean, that was so fast. Fast. So the speed of its coming, and the day will bring about the destruction of of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, right, and a new earth, the home of the righteous. He says, hey, don't fight over stuff. Live holy and godly lives and consider his return and be ready. Now, here's my question for you. In, In all sincerity, if I'm sitting in the car ready to go, and I know you're outside of it, then I beckon to call you in. Like, are you at peace with God in your heart that you know if today was your last day or Christ returned, that you would be at peace with him? you got to decide that. And I I think you ought to just settle that today because you're looking at a group of people, you're sitting with people who look all dressed up but have a lot of baggage that Christ has forgiven and worked on, and changed, and transformed as they've surrendered it to him. Don't be fooled by the facade that, wow, they look really good. They must have it all together. No, we have it all together because we are in Christ. And he has changed us and made us at peace with God Almighty. So one of the things you you would know know or learn about me is that I love riddles. I love math riddles or um or numbers riddles, or that kind of stuff, and so I came across this riddle this week that I really loved. Have you, ever, have you ever told somebody a riddle and watched how confused they got before you got to the end? Do you know what I mean? Okay, here's an example. Here's the, here's the riddle I started with. I won't tell you the whole riddle, but if you want to know the rest of it, you can come ask me after. Randy and two other people, his wife Oh, and his daughter. Sorry. You look like his daughter. You're looking good. All right. So his, uh, <laughs> this is a big con. Okay. <laughs> Randy, his wife, and his daughter go to a hotel room for the night because they're traveling. And it costs $30. How much does each person pay? Well, Randy, <laughs> Randy pays $30. That's right much? <laughs> that was classic. How much does it cost per person? $10. $10. That's not even part of the riddle. That's just basic math. So I asked that this week to you should have very, great confidence in your staff and those who work in the church because I got I got these answers. 15 <laughs> 21. Wait, wait. 7 seven each. 725 each is what somebody said. I don't know where, I don't know how we get to that. Somebody said 35. Like, and I was like, oh my goodness. We, I, I let everybody know that they were all let go and I was going to start over with another staff. <laughs> but you, you, you ever been in those situations where on the spot somebody's asking you, it feels, it feels, it feels crazy. But you get so focused on what's not the, not the thing that you miss the whole point. I think sometimes when it comes to end times things, we miss the point because we get caught up in a lot of the details, which are good, but not the most important thing, which leads us to the last gate, which is this. It's the final gate, the inspection gate. It's the last gate before we get to the sheep gate, which is where we started, and the purpose of the inspection gate was for the king to muster all the troops before they went to war and inspect them. Like an army, the the army of Israel would would stand before the king and he would review. And he would look at his captains and he would look at all those over these and they'd say, how are your men? They're ready or they're not ready or get them ready. And he would review and inspect them. And what we know is there will be a day when every single one of us stands before the king and gives account for our life. You do. You give an account for your life. The inspection gate reminds us there will be a final judgment. Luke chapter 18 says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When God looks around at us, what does he see? When when." if it was our last day today or, or Christ returned and we were, we were taken, would he find faith in us? Would he look at us and would he see Christ in us or would he just see us? Would he watch you walk up with all your baggage and all your stuff and all the things you try to keep and all the material things you try to make yourself happy with and all the ways you didn't surrender to Christ? And Would he see that or would he see, I dropped everything, those things are fine, but just give me Jesus when he looks at you, does he see Christ in you or just you? And when you come to peace with God, what you understand is that there is a transformation because Christ is in you, not because you willed yourself to be better. Like it's, it's it's him in you and it's the repetition of surrender to him over and over and over. I cannot work myself to being saved, but I am saved to do good works. And for the rest of my life, I will push back evil in the name of Christ, for his sake, because of what he's done in my life. Like, I've been transformed, and I've been changed, and I can tell you the time and the place, and I will not forget what a miracle it is for a sinner such as I to know that I know that I know that God and I are good. So, the band's going to come back and lead us in a song, and... um, Man, I just have to ask you, how do you stand in relationship with God? How do you stand in your, in, in your moment? Does he see Christ's righteousness or does he see your filthiness? I'm going to pray for you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to think of your own life for a minute. Jude chapter 1 says this, To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior. Be majesty and glory and power and authority through Jesus Christ before all ages, now and forevermore. Man, for many of you, I would say, hey, is is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Lord? Are you good? Are you at peace with God because of Jesus? Yes. I know there are people in here who do not have a peace that the Bible says transpa- uh, that surpasses all understanding. The world's falling down around you. I'm still at peace. The world's going crazy. I still have faith in my God. Man, if you if you close, just close your eyes for a minute. Don't, don't even worry about anybody else. If you if you were gonna say to me, I need you to pray for me today because I don't know where I am and I want to put my faith and a surrender in Jesus Christ. Would you just lift a hand up? I'll pray for you. I won't tell, we won't tell anybody, we won't embarrass you. Anybody say that's the prayer today? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Father, we love you today. The prayer is. The prayer that many of us has prayed, and a couple will pray today that raise their hands, is, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of Jesus, a Savior, and I surrender my life. Lord, when you hear prayers like that, I know that heaven rejoices, but we rejoice too. So we're going to sing, Lord, and we're going to reflect for a minute before we go on our way. We're going we're to worship you in both spirit and truth. We're going to give you the glory because you're 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 returning and, and we're ready and we're waiting. In Jesus' name. Amen.